My name is Terry O'Reilly. It's 1872. In Cologne, Germany, an earnest young engineer is reporting for work at Deutz AG, an internal combustion engine pioneer. His name is Gottlieb Daimler. For the next decade, he would help develop a four-stroke gas engine. Shortly after starting work, goes the legend, Daimler got hold of a picture postcard of the new factory to send back to his wife, Emma Kuntz. Over the factory, he drew a three-point star, adding the remark, one day this star will shine over our triumphant factories. In 1909, nearly a decade after Daimler ascended to that great six-way adjustable bucket seat in the sky, his sons, Paul and Adolf Daimler, were stuck for an idea. They needed a symbol for the exciting new line of engines they were developing for land, water, and air, including a hugely popular automobile, the Mercedes. Yep, they remembered the symbol their father had drawn on that postcard. That year, the company's board approved the idea. In 1926, their company would amalgamate with the firm founded by Carl Benz. His trademark laurel leaf would surround the three-point star. In time, that laurel leaf evolved into a simple circle. Now, skip ahead some eight decades. Today, the Mercedes-Benz star symbol remains a textbook example of a great corporate logo. Simple, universal, symbolic, ageless. It's no small feat that this symbol, based on a postcard doodle, continues to thrive, especially considering the logos of even larger companies created by high-rent designers and tested with small armies of focus groups languish. And especially in a time when everybody's got a logo, or trademark, or emblem that symbolizes who they are. Prime ministers have them, so do presidents, toy companies, royalty, breakfast cereals, and the Pope. Stick around, and I'll take you back through five centuries of trademarks and logos. I'll show you how great logos are being translated into sound, even attitude. And you'll discover just how tricky it's become to leave your mark in the age of persuasion. Read my lips. I've fallen, and I can't get up! Don't be a square. The only thing we have to fear is... Maytag, the dependability people. And now, Terry O'Reilly and the Age of Persuasion. All the humanity. Cops, Dysons, Menses. <laughs> it's that simple. First, a stop at the library. Says here the word logo probably derives from the term logogram, from the Greek logos, meaning word, and gram, meaning what is written. Together, meaning sign or character representing a word. I love that sound. Want a great example of a modern logo? You might look and listen here at the corporate headquarters of Yahoo Inc. of Sunnyvale, California. Nowadays, some 400 million people visit Yahoo online. 
There, it combines a search engine with news, entertainment, personalized websites, and online shopping. Yahoo's visual logo is all about the company's attitude. Goofy, large, red letters with a big honkin' exclamation mark. When Yahoo began advertising on radio, they needed that logo to translate into sound. So they created this. Together, the logos, both visual and audible, capture the experience of the Yahoo brand, making it possible to surf with wild abandon. And how exactly do they make that sound fit with a given message? Mull that a moment and come back with me a few years. I'm sure there's some disappointed people here. You know what? Howard Dean's bid for the U.S. presidency was coming along tickety-boo. Or it was until the evening of January 19th, 2004. Placing a disappointing third in the Iowa caucuses, Dean rallied the troops. That was when he emitted the now-famous Dean scream. For reasons that pass understanding, it effectively ended his bid for America's highest office. South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. So what's that got to do with the Yahoo logo? Funny you should ask. In 2005, Yahoo was honored at America's Radio Mercury Awards for this spot which managed to marry Mr. Dean's legendary exuberance to that of the Yahoo Audio logo. I'm Governor Howard Dean, doctor, author, and former presidential candidate. The past year has been pretty stressful and exhilarating, but lately I've found an inner peace traveling all over the country to promote my new book, You Have the Power, and giving speeches on the campaign trail. Yahoo locals helped me find all sorts of things, like bookstores in Iowa! and convention centers in Nebraska, and some very interesting diners in Illinois. Introducing Yahoo Local. Yahoo Local lets you search for things you need and see the results on the same map at the same time. Next week, I'm doing a book signing in Ohio, and then we're gonna stroll through some museums in California, and then we're taking a breather in Washington, D.C. Just go to yahoo.com and click on local, and you can quickly and easily get the lay of the land. I'm just trying to get people more excited about the democratic process. New Yahoo Local. Life is all around you. Find it at yahoo.com. Yahoo! My sentiments exactly. Give Howard Dean the Good Sport Award for poking fun at himself, especially about a moment he'd likely give his back teeth and several toes to have back. One point that interests me about this spot. Self-deprecation isn't something you often hear in a U.S. ad. This is where I've noticed a distinct difference between the U.S. and Canada. My experience pitching ads to clients in both countries is that Canadians tend to embrace self-deprecating humor where Americans typically dislike it. Evidently, they can make an exception for a fallen politician making a joke at his own expense. Yahoo, with its wonderfully flippant radio logo, Yahoo! recognized in the Dean scream a kindred spirit. The key here is that Yahoo created a sound that symbolizes its brand image every bit as effectively as its print logo does visually. And the secret is corralling a U.S. governor unafraid to call himself a Yahoo. The Yahoo logo is perfectly suited to the age of persuasion. It's a sentiment or attitude expressed in a universal word which works equally well in print, online, outdoors, 
and in broadcast. The use of the word logo is fairly modern, but the logo as we know it has ancient roots. Back in medieval days, when knights galloped about, what, crusading and defending the faith, they passed their days engaging in quests, most involving little or no bathing. Trouble was, knights and soldiers tended to look alike under all that hardware. So, some ancient brainiac had an idea. Each knight could have a special coat made with some kind of design distinguishing his family. They'd wear it over their armor, hence the term coat of arms. <laughs> Those same designs were carved over fireplace mantles and over front doors. Signet rings were used to impress one's distinctive mark onto wax seals. In today's language, think of a coat of arms as an ancient family logo. A trademark, on the other hand, is a different kind of beast, more a legal mark of ownership and origin. Here in the Lascaux Caves of France in September of 1940, ancient drawings of bison were discovered. Some scholars think the drawings may indicate ownership of the beasts. In effect, 16,000-year-old trademarks. For most of the past thousand years, craftsfolk and artisans have been encouraged, often required, to put their stamp or mark on their goods, giving customers someone to praise or blame for a product. Silversmiths developed a unique stamp to identify their works. So did bakers, bell makers, and paper maker people. It was one nifty system, that is, till around 1618. That was the year English courts heard the case of Southern versus Howe. Seems the manufacturer of a high-quality cloth sued a rival who produced inferior cloth, but used a trademark reserved for the good stuff. In Old English, the term for that is knocketh offeth, but don't quote me on that. While trademarks flourished, it would be another three centuries before logos, as we know them, came about. With train travel came mass merchandising. A single manufacturer could sell to vast new markets spread out over thousands of miles. Alas, so could the competition. Manufacturers needed to create symbols to distinguish their brand from those of the bad guys. So trademarks were created, not just for the manufacturer, but for individual brands. These symbols would come in mighty handy in the newfangled business of mass market newspaper advertising. In the late 1900s, ad agencies sprouted like dandelions, buying print space for their clients in dozens of papers in a bazillion markets all at once. Some not only bought the ad space, but also helped fashion the message they quickly discovered that including the brand's logo would help their clients' ads stand out. Still, it wasn't enough, because of all those pesky competitors running their logos with their ads. It was a new kind of war, 
requiring a psychological advantage, a new kind of tactic. And so was born the slogan. Taken from the Gaelic phrase slagerm, literally the cry of the host or battle cry. Slogans, as you might guess, have ancient roots. They're rooted in pride. Fight on, my brave York volunteers! In fury. Remember the Alamo! In futility. And so it was that early ad slogans emerged, embracing a company's philosophy or commitment. In 1903, Canadian department store pioneer Timothy Eaton ran an announcement that would evolve into one of the great slogans. We guarantee to take back or exchange goods at your experience if unsatisfactory, provided they're returned promptly and in good condition. Before long, it evolved into the more pithy we cheerfully refund the money if goods do not exactly suit. In 1907, it was trimmed down to... Goods right, or money back. Then, in 1913, Eaton sweetened the pot. Goods satisfactory or money refunded, including shipping charges. Give or take the part about shipping charges, one of the great Canadian ad slogans was born. In the 1920s, with advertising logos becoming more inventive and slogans helping distinguish brands, a new medium came along and tossed a stick in the spokes of advertising. Valiant lady. Today, well lived, makes every yesterday a dream of happiness and every tomorrow a vision of hope. Yeah, they just don't write them like that anymore. Advertisers, by now accustomed to trademarks and logos, needed to express their brand in sound. Until they did, yelling would have to do. Brought to you by General Mills' new Bisquick that cuts time and work almost in half when you bake. Quickly, they discovered music. Get wild root cream while Charlie it wasn't long before brands discovered the merits of marrying a slogan to music, to a point where a logo, slogan, and sound worked together to enhance the promise of the brand. Brill cream, brill cream, brill cream, brill cream, a little apple do ya, brill cream, you look so debonair. Somewhere out of this wilderness of early broadcast came a new kind of battle cry. Then, an entirely new kind of beast, today known as a mnemonic or audio logo. It was in 1947 that one of broadcasting's great mnemonics, the NBC Chimes, became the first sound ever registered as a trademark. When Bromoseltzer devised this ingenious mnemonic, combining the brand name with a strong visual and musical quality, they entrenched themselves in the minds of millions. This ditty infused itself into the popular culture, enough so to merit a place in Spike Jones' classic parody of the hit song, Laura. And you see Laura on the 
train that is passing through. Over 600 years, trademarks and logos had evolved from a quick form of ID to a form of legal protection and a branding tool. But for the past 20 years, one of the continent's longest-serving trademarks caused no end of trouble for one of the world's largest brands. And it all began with a little malicious gossip. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is The Age of Persuasion. On Tuesday, March 1st, 1994, the president of Procter & Gamble did not appear on The Phil Donahue Show, or that of Jenny Jones or Sally Jesse Raphael. During that non-appearance, he did not announce his association and that of his company with the Church of Satan. Further, he did not state that a large portion of his company's profits go to support the Church of Satan. Then, when Mr. Donahue, or Ms. Jones, or Ms. Raphael did not ask him if this statement wouldn't hurt his business, he did not reply, there are not enough Christians in the United States to make a difference. From this bit of fantasy, spun sometime in the 80s, spawned one of the mightiest urban legends of the past generation. And at the hub of this malevolent Ferris wheel is Procter & Gamble's trademark. In a circle, a man in the moon, a crescent moon with the face of a bearded man, beholds 13 stars in a night sky. Fact is, the P&G trademark dates back to 1850. Given a relatively low rate of literacy in those days, trademarks tended to employ symbols instead of words. The man in the moon was simply a popular icon of the time. The 13 stars paid tribute to America's original 13 colonies. In 1860, when P&G changed the logo to lose the man in the moon, customers complained. So back it came, and there it remained. Ah, but according to the urban legend, this ancient logo is the work of the devil. Hey, Keith, turn on the black light. Ooh, how cool is that? Check the beard on the man in the moon, beg the conspiracy buffs. It's there, they say, you'll see the three sixes, the sign of the beast, according to the book of Revelation. Never mind that. Even if there is a Church of Satan, its membership couldn't pack the back of a 77 pacer. Yes, we live in a world where people actually sit around thinking this stuff up. Okay, Keith. This knucklehead rumor would have flitted out as quickly as a birthday candle in a plow wind were it not for the internet. Its exponential growth since the 90s has elevated anonymous rumor-mongering to a high art. Just as the P&G trademark story had begun to fade, it found new life online, which has kept Procter & Gamble busy in court. Sure, stopping a rumor with a lawsuit is kind of like putting out a fire with a hammer. Still, P&G has launched a bunch of suits, many against Amway. Seems some Amway higher-ups were spreading the story by way of automated voice messaging among the company's distributors. So far, fending off P&G lawyers has cost Amway a reported $30 million in legal fees. How is it that a rumor can hamstring a multi-billion dollar corporation? 
because its brands exist in the imagination of its consumers. It's tough ground to win, and for the biggest brands, even tougher ground to defend. The hubbub over their Man in the Moon trademark might explain why P&G's corporate logo is now a chronically ordinary blue treatment of the letters P&G. Unlike so many of the giant brands who have fascinating logos with intriguing stories behind them. The Porsche logo, for instance, is the image of a horse on a shield. It's based on the, wait for it, coat of arms of its home city of Stuttgart, which, loosely translated, means stud farm. <laughs> Slightly less equine is Cadillac's emblem, the coat of arms of Antoine de la Moth, Seigneur de Cadillac, the European founder of Detroit. The ever-familiar logo for Bavarian Motor Works, or BMW, signifies a propeller spinning against a blue sky. That, from its origin as a maker of aircraft engines during the First World War. Less lofty still is the Volkswagen logo, the winning entry from an inner office competition at VW back in the 30s. Give it up for Franz Reimspies, who won 30 marks for his troubles. John Pemberton may have invented Coca-Cola, but it's his bookkeeper, Frank Robinson, who's credited with both the name and the famous script logo. Robinson, believing things go better with a little alliteration, opined that the two C's would look well in advertising. Designer Rob Janoff created several logos for Apple in the 1970s. The one that stuck was a rainbow-colored apple with a bite out of it signifying knowledge gained, a nod to the story of Adam and Eve swiping the apple from the tree of knowledge, a big enough idea to inspire billions in sales, yet not big enough to merit its own urban legend. Design student Carolyn Davidson created the famous Nike swoosh, for which she billed a whopping $35. Years later, Nike brass gave her a gold swoosh ring and a shoebox full of Nike stock. In the 1950s, marketing guy William Goldman was driving through Pennsylvania Dutch country when he spotted eye-like hex symbols on Shaker barns, drawn for protection from evil spirits. So inspired, he created the famous CBS Eye logo, which has stared out at millions of TV viewers for more than half a century. When there's no shaker barn nearby to provide inspiration, the big guns have traditionally called one Paul Rand, master logo designer. Among his creations are logos for IBM, the American Broadcasting Company, Westinghouse, and UPS. I find it astonishing to notice how some of the world's biggest brands, including Procter & Gamble, rely so little on a clever logo. Canon and Sony, for instance, offer only simple treatments of their company names. And as for Microsoft, one of the world's most ubiquitous brands, I can't even recall their logo. And the trademark? The corporate symbol that began it all? Nowadays, trademarks are rarely about building a brand, and almost always about legally protecting a property, whether it's a product, a shape, a phrase, a color, a scent, a sound, or a signature move. 
When Donald Trump applied in 2004 to trademark the phrase, you're fired, he incurred the wrath of one Susan Brenner of Chicago, owner of You're Fired, a ceramic studio and craft store. In the late 90s, Youngling and Son won a beer bet with the folks at Molson Breweries that they could claim the trademark phrase, America's oldest brewery. Molson, though older, is Canadian-based and couldn't convince the trademark people that America really means North America, including Canada. In June 2006, the Supreme Court held that Barbie's Restaurant of Montreal did not infringe on the trademark held by Mattel Toys for its buxom plastic blonde. Upholding the principle that a trademark can't be stretched across vastly different types of property. A brand is more than the sum of its logos or trademarks or slogans. Where a brand lives in the imagination of a consumer, a logo is a kind of shorthand. When you see big outdoor billboards with a picture of Albert Einstein, the headline, Think Different, and a tiny Apple logo with the bite out of it in the corner, we know who's bringing us that message. And that shorthand sends us instantly back through Apple's history. The best logos and slogans and trademarks always reflect the brand's promise. Some, like Apple, exemplify the promise. Others simply become symbols of the promise like Ralph Lauren's polo logo and Nike's swoosh. On their own, unexceptional. Yet over time, each effectively communicating its remarkable brand. A glance is all it takes to identify a brand on a tennis player's racket, a hockey player's jersey, or a golfer's shirt. The glimpse of a familiar logo in a foreign land is all it takes to feel a little more at home. Some consumers won't buy clothes unless the designer's logo is front and center. Today, the trick is creating and managing lasting shorthand emblems that translate from print to broadcast to outdoor ads to the internet. With rapidly changing media, intense competition, and consumers increasingly impervious to sales pitches, it's becoming harder than ever to leave your mark in the age of persuasion. It's a fact. On March 1st, 1994, both Terry O'Reilly and Mike Tennant appeared on Phil Donahue, Jenny Jones, Sally Jesse Raphael, Nightline, 60 Minutes, Dateline, 2020, and Bowling for Dollars, and publicly admitted to creating and writing The Age of Persuasion. When asked what would compel them, both were quick to name Engineer Keith Oman. Their evil empire is set to music by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre, whose music, played backwards, sounds like this. The Age of Persuasion is produced for CBC Radio by Pirate Radio and Television Toronto. 